Hey, Urban Farm Podcast listeners. If you're as passionate about preserving the bounty of each season as we are, hey, I canned my first peaches at the age of 18, and that was a long time ago, then you're going to love what our friends over at Denali Canning have in store for you. They're on a mission to spread the love and knowledge of food preservation, and they're inviting you to join the journey for free. Right now, Denali Canning is offering free canning lids to anyone who wants to dive deeper into the world of food preservation. Yes, you heard that right, absolutely free. It's the perfect opportunity for both seasoned canners and those curious about starting. Denali is about quality, reliability, and supporting the canning community, ensuring that you get the best results every time you preserve. So why not give it a try? Visit DenaliCanning.com forward slash free to claim your free lids and start your preserving adventures today. That's DenaliCanning.com forward slash free. Do you want to save money at the grocery store, eat more organic, whole foods, cultivate food security, and feel more connected to the earth? If so, then growing your own food is a no-brainer. You wouldn't believe how many people come to me claiming that they can't grow their own food. They think they don't have enough space, that they're too busy, or that they simply don't have what it takes. Perhaps you've fallen for one of these gardening myths. If you think you can't grow food, or if you think the only food that you have access to is what you buy in the grocery store, I have a life-changing webinar that you need to see. It's free and will help you unearth your inner gardener. I've helped thousands of people just like you learn to grow their own food, and I'm speaking from my own experience when I say that with the right knowledge in place, there is no such thing as a black thumb. With this webinar, you can begin making your garden dreams come true and start growing delicious, nutritious food for your family. Just text GARDEN to 44222 or go to IWantToGarden.com and you will receive our free webinar about the seven key factors you need to know to grow your own food. Remember, that's GARDEN to 44222 or IWantToGarden.com. You're listening to the Urban Farm Podcast, your partner in the grow your own food revolution. Whether you've just been introduced to urban farming or you're a lifelong advocate, we're sure you'll leave feeling more informed, equipped, and empowered to dig deeper into the soil of your local food economy. With you every step of the way, here's your host, Greg Peterson. Today on the Urban Farm Podcast, we have Ben Raskin to talk about community gardening and his new book, The Community Gardening Handbook. Ben has been working in horticulture for more than 20 years and has been with Soil Association in the United Kingdom since 2006. His own experience includes running a walled garden in Sussex, which supplied a Michelin-starred restaurant, and working for Garden Organic at their gardens in Kent. He also set up and ran a 10-acre horticultural production at Dalesford Organic Farm before moving to Welsh College of Horticulture as commercial manager. Ben also works on a large range of other projects, and over the years, these have included working as horticultural advisor and founding board member of the community farm near Bristol, and running a program of biochar trials with organic growers. 
He is currently managing a new agroforestry planting on Helen Browning's farm near Swindon. He is also a board member of the Community Supported Agriculture Network UK and committee member of the Organic Growers Alliance. With all of this experience, he also has authored and written the Community Garden Handbook, which we're going to talk about today, and two family gardening books titled Grow and Compost. Welcome to the show today, Ben. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. From all the way across the pond, you're coming in from where? Uh, from a place called Malmesbury in the southwest of England. Oh, nice. Nice, nice. So I shared a bit about you. Can you fill in the blanks for us and share more about the path you took to get where you're at now? Yeah, absolutely. I, I first came to gardening actually through food. Uh, I have two parents who were very passionate about food and interested in food, both great cooks. Mm -hmm. And my dad was a very keen gardener and I used to, apparently I was the only child that enjoyed helping him out in the garden. He told me that much later. Uh -huh. uh, and so initially I actually wanted to be a chef and I worked in hotels, then got slightly distracted by a, an ancient history degree. Oh, uh, <laughs> and then didn't really quite know what I wanted to do with myself. And I ended up living in Italy and I met a vineyard owner out there and started hanging out at the vineyard just partly because of the wine and partly because it was a fun place to be. Oh, yeah. So then started working, helping with the harvesting and the bottling, just sort of being outside, working hard. And I thought, actually, I love this. This is great. Still in my head had the thought that I'd set up my own cafe and grow my own vegetables. and But actually, the more I got into the gardening side of it, the more I, I loved that. And so abandoned the late nights of catering world for the slightly more serene world of growing. Mm -hmm. uh, and then came back from Italy, did a did a one year course and then and then just got a series of jobs in, in vegetable growing, fruit growing. And then wanted to move back down to the southwest of England where my family are from. Was looking actually for some land to start my own enterprise up really because I'd got fed up of growing for other people. And while I was looking, a job at the Soil Association came up for a couple of years. I thought, that's oh, great. I can yes. do that while I'm looking for land. Uh -huh. ten, years, ten years later, I'm still there <laughs> working part time now for them. But, uh -huh. um, so, and doing bits of growing on the side. So, so it's a quite a nice balance really of nice. the two worlds. Nice. So the Soil Association, that's in the United Kingdom. I looked online at their website and it looks pretty impressive. We're, we're a good organization. We've been going since 1946. Uh -huh. uh, we're, we're a membership charity, so we, we've got a lot of public members, but we also have a certification company that certifies organic businesses and, and farms. Ah, right. So we, we have a, a mix of, a real mix of campaigning, practical support, certification work, which, which makes it interesting. Mm -hmm. It's uh, yeah, interesting organization. We do sort of some of what Rodale Institute might do in the, um, in the US with you, yeah. but, but then we do the certification bit as well. So it's, a, it's a, a quite a complicated, but an interesting organization. Nice. Nice. Well, I've got you here today because I got a, a press release in my email inbox a few weeks ago that talked about a new community garden handbook. And when I saw the press release, it's like, oh my gosh, we got to talk to this guy because I can't tell you how many times a week 
I get an email from somebody or a phone call and they say, hey, listen, I need somebody to come and farm my yard or I'm at a school and I need to start a garden here or I want to start a community garden. And we really have no place to send people. So you, you wrote the book, The Community Gardening Handbook, The Guide to Organizing, Planting, and Caring for a Community Garden. So let's start with, why did you write it? <laughs> so my, yeah, I mean, as we've just explained, my background is more commercial, sort of pure commercial horticulture. But I have increasingly become interested in the, the interface, I guess, between amateur and commercial horticulture Uh and particularly around the benefits of people coming together to grow and that's the benefits for the individuals but also the collective benefit for the community there's a much less developed community supported agriculture movement in the UK than there is in the US Mm -hmm. and I've been quite involved in that as well and for me there's a lot of there's a lot of fear about gardening for mm. people starting it up and i don't know if it's the same in the states but here we have a traditionally it's been a kind of it's an old man's hobby growing vegetables right and it was part of the second world war when we were all growing food for survival and dig for victory and all of that stuff um, and so until probably 10 or 15 years ago, allotments and community gardens, they would have been much more the, the domain of, of older men and yeah. other people would have been a bit off put by it. There's been a, a massive increase in a shift towards young families wanting to get involved and younger people getting interested in gardening, mm-hmm. almost becoming a bit cool again. But actually, a lot of people don't really know what they're doing. They <laughs> haven't they haven't had that uh, teaching experience from their parents, perhaps. Um, so they take on an allotment, perhaps on their own, or they they have their own garden at home, and they do a couple of things. Maybe they they have one or two failures, as we all do, and they get put off and they give up and they say, "Oh well, I don't know what I'm doing. I'm going to give up." Right. I have a. Bl- and I, then he, I, I hear a lot. I have a brown thumb. Yeah. <laughs> uh, but equally, they still need to eat, so they still go and buy their vegetables, but right. they haven't necessarily made the connection between what they're doing at home and what professional farmers are doing. They think of it as something quite different, whereas actually it's it's really the same. It's just a question of scale. Community gardening and community-supported agriculture, I think, helps to bring those two worlds together and allows less experienced people to gain confidence and learn but it also brings people members of the community together around other things and often you know as i'm sure you know you find that from that gardening other things come up and friendships arise and so quite apart from the the food that's being produced there's benefits to health to mental well-being you know all those other range of things that doing things as a community and and gardening in itself can bring so that's that was kind of my driver and i realized that that there wasn't really something out there we the soil association actually ran a project on community supported agriculture which Uh is you know the sort of slightly commercial end of community gardening as it were right and some of the information we we were collecting through that made me realize that there wasn't there wasn't much out there for, for anybody and part of it 
is is the scaling up bit so yes. even where even where you've got really good gardeners who've been doing it in their their garden for years you suddenly say oh well actually now you've got to do you know a quarter of an acre or half an acre mm-hmm. and they go oh my god i don't know how much to plant I, you know right and and suddenly the fear sets in do i need new equipment do i need you know so so there's that element as well and i, I think often it is just a confidence thing and it's bringing yes. people in with some more experience or or a different experience that can help help implement things so the book how do you have it broken down so the uh, what we decided to do was uh, the was just really sort of inspire people at the start uh-huh. so hen- hence the first section is is taking a few amazing community gardens from around the world showing in a way the the, the breadth and range of what it could be and i think you know whatever you imagine a community garden to be you've probably only imagined half uh, you know at most of what it might be right. and when you realize what what and it, and and interestingly it means different things in different countries oh yes. um, mm-hmm. yeah so uh, so i think we can all take inspiration from what other countries have done and how they see it mm-hmm. so that was that was the first bit and then i wanted to take people through the the sort of the two bits of a of setting up an actual garden and particularly if it is on a larger scale than you might have been used to before so there's some real practical stuff about irrigation and you know cultivation and things like that um but also the community bit and yeah community gardening it's the community's the the first word so having that community or, or building that community around a garden is as important as as the garden otherwise you might just as well go off on your own and do it and so i wanted to try and explore some of the challenges and the opportunities of bringing a group, group of people together um to to achieve building that dream i guess Wow, cool. So I'm I'm thumbing through your book. So if you're hearing pages turning, it's because I'm <laughs> I'm just voraciously consuming your book. And I'm in the first section right now and, and it's like, wow. An introduction to community gardening. And you have got community gardens there's all over the world. Let's see here. There's Germany that you visited, there's Spain. Uh, Australia, Japan, USA. I, yeah, I would love to say I'd visited them all. Uh-huh. <laughs> I, I visited some in the Spanish one I, I did go to. Yeah. Um, I mean, in, as I was researching for the book, mm-hmm. it just it became actually really difficult to choose which ones to put in. Because there there's are so, because there's so there many just of them. So many, just so many. Oh, yeah. So, nice. And uh, so you sort of you go, oh, that's a great one. I'm going to put that, you know, I'm going to include that one. And then you do a bit. Oh, no, but there's another one down the road that's that's just as good, you know. So so actually it made me realize how much is going on. And I, you know, mostly had been involved in the in the UK before that. So I wasn't, you know, I wasn't that aware of some of the things that were happening further afield. But yeah, through the research, it made me realize quite how much was going on. Great. So one one of the ways to tell a story around in this topic community garden is to give examples of it which you've done a beautiful job it looks like then the next section it starts to delve into actually how to do it yeah and 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 really some of again i mean i'm quite a, a practical person I, I come from it i'm sort of one of these people that when you start talking about it i actually just start doing it i, uh-huh. I don't enjoy so sitting around talking about how you might do things I tend, <laughs> right. I, I tend, let's just get it done I, yeah exactly and sometimes that means i don't think quite hard enough 
before I do things. But yeah. equally, it it does mean that I sort of get into it. So I wanted, in a way, I wanted to give some of that real practical detail. You know, whether it's around you know the legal side of land tenure yeah. or you know how to organise a meeting. You know, some of that stuff that sometimes seems obvious, but if you haven't considered it, you might not even think that it's relevant. Right. And and certainly through the so one of the the big projects that I was involved in was setting up uh, what we called the community farm, uh, uh-huh. and it's near Bristol again in the southwest of England. Uh, it was actually quite an ambitious project, growing on about uh, twenty acres, and it was designed to link up some of the people who lived in the city of Bristol, which uh, is is a city with a population of around 700,000 people. Mm-hmm. We were actually based about nine miles outside that, near a beautiful village overlooking a lake. But the local community at the time were not that engaged. And, and so right. our link was through to this urban center. Yeah. And one of the things we did, we, we brought together this fantastic group of, of people to set it up. And, you know, say in the book, we, you know, we had a we had a lawyer, we had a health worker, we had a teacher, we had a yeah, retailer, we had the farmer who was renting us the land, we had a local food advisor. So we had this this really great bunch of people with a wide range of experience. And it made everything so much easier having that group mm. of people. And, you know, I had been used to working, you know, either for myself or with, say, one farm manager where we would have actually quite similar skills and experience. We were very good at certain things, but actually didn't have a clue about other stuff. Right. Um, and suddenly you've got this group of 10 people and you say, oh, well, actually, you know all about that. I don't even need to yeah. think about that side of it. Yeah. You know, I don't need to read acres of legal documents mm-hmm. working out what I'm supposed to be doing because we've got someone on, you know, on the group who's doing that. But equally, you know, working with a group of people is, is challenging because you can't just make your own decisions and go off and do whatever you want. You have to do it by consensus, right. which, is, which is good, but it's also, you know, can be challenging. And it can be challenging for people who are the sort of people that, that have the energy and the drive and the vision to set things up. You know, often they're the people with very strong ideas who, <laughs> who, who don't always want to listen to what other people have yeah. got to say. So managing that, that particular at the start, I think, managing that that group is is one of the big challenges and uh-huh. it's something that that we we didn't always get right at all at the community farm but we we sort of i think we got better at it as it went yeah. on well and it's you know it's all this incredible process of you know getting from here to there exactly and, and experimenting you know one of my questions i always ask is about a time you failed and because that's where our learnings come from yeah yeah in terms of failure, I've got there's a couple of things. Uh, one one is actually a growing failure, and well, one, and one one possibly is connected to that community group. Yeah, but well, the we'll, gro- get, the, we'll get oh, we'll, we'll get to that one. Okay, we'll, we'll, we'll get, get there in a little yeah. while. Yeah, because right, I'm still yeah. I'm still fascinated by this book. I I'm still thumbing through it, and so your chapter two is extending roots, and I just want to read these topics that you cover in here. Um, share skill events. Uh, seed swap event, community events, legal structures for community enterprises, really important. Uh, the legalities, how do, you, you know, how do you gain access to land and make sure that you have long-term access to that land? Uh, and that's to, such, a, such a challenge, yeah. um, particularly in urban situations where there's, there's often a lot of other pressures on that land. Yes, exactly. 
Exactly. And, and you know, making sure that you gain long-term access is really important. We recently lost one of our uh, one of our large community gardens here in Phoenix because the property sold. So yeah, yeah, yeah. absolutely. And th I get this one a lot, people wanting to start uh, a community garden, but how do you make sure that your project survives and you cover that? Can you speak yeah. a little bit about that? Yeah, and it, I mean, it goes back to getting to, to that, getting that group to work and to nurturing that group. So it's very easy to to bring a group of people together initially with lots of excitement about you know how, what you're going to do and how you're going to do it and and you start up and then it gets a bit hard or people start you know personalities clash or people have different ideas uh -huh. or or even even if you haven't got any of that even if everyone's pulling together amazingly and again this is something that happened at the community farm we all just put so much into it um, and it's, you know, it's always voluntary. So people have always got their day jobs and their families and whatever other pressures they've got in their life. They're following this vision of, of setting up this garden. They're putting every spare hour into it. A year or two into the project, they're all bur burnt out. And, yeah. and the risk the risk is that you don't bring anyone new in. You, oh, you yeah. keep a sort of tight control of what you're doing. And then you all you know you all flake out at the same time <laughs> and there's no one to to take it on so so making sure that you're that you're doing it in a sustainable way so not yeah. taking on too much at a time not you know that pushes it can push the land but it can also push the group and it can push your energy yeah. and then making sure that you're always looking to bring new people in with new ideas and new energy and recognizing as well particularly for that founding group when it's time to step back Mm -hmm. And that doesn't mean that doesn't mean abandoning it or or stopping involvement, but actually realizing that you can't do everything. So that's for me is one of the crucial bits of keeping giving giving a community garden a long life is is making sure that you nurture the community group as well as yeah. as well as the soil. Beautiful. So one of the things that I always tell people is that you in in order for a project like this to be successful, you really need to have that one person that is a thousand percent committed to it to make it happen have you found that's the case uh, yeah at least one yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, at least one i think yeah you need someone that just pushes everybody else along yeah um and and whether whether that's just because they've got the vision or they've got the time sometimes as well it can depend but yeah i think i think usually these things do rely certainly in the startup phase on that one person with the drive and again it's making sure that as the project develops and matures that it's not always all on that person because right. otherwise it will collapse well and that's where the community piece comes in yeah you know, you've got to bring in that community exactly so, so let's talk about how urban growing or urban farming can play a part in feeding the world i'm interested in in this debate and there's there's a lot of talk in this country i'm guessing it's the same in the states of things like vertical farming and you know the hydroponic opportunities mm -hmm. and using every space my personal view uh, and it obviously depends on the country and how big cities are and how much land you've got um, but my guess is that in most fairly urban countries the reality is there's not anywhere near enough land in cities to try to feed those cities mm -hmm. so my personal view is that they offer a 
probably a small contribution in terms of actual volume of food towards the whole mm -hmm. now for certain for certain people who are very committed and very involved they might actually get most of their food from a community gardening or an urban gardening situation but for me it's it goes back to that connection and that understanding mm -hmm. of right. food production and food systems so if you understand what it means to grow a carrot and how difficult it is to grow a <laughs> carrot well and <laughs> yeah, you know then. not to get any diseases and you know to get a carrot every week of the year when you want it then you, you have a different perception of the farmer. Yeah. You have a, an understanding of what that means if your living depends on producing carrots every week for, for a market. Right. And so it changes the way you think about food and it changes the way you, you shop. And we did an evaluation of our CSA project uh, and the people that have been involved in community-supported agriculture. And one of the findings that came out that I think perhaps surprised people but probably shouldn't have done is that not only did they love being up on the farm and they loved getting their food from the you know the the farm and supporting the farmer and all of those things that you would expect but also they then changed their shopping habits and they oh, yes. they were more likely to buy local food they were more likely not to go to the supermarket all of those things so it changes actually the whole conversation about food supply and about supply chains and about where it comes from yeah um, and to me i think that education aspect probably is the most important bit in terms of feeding the world it gives people a better understanding to make more informed choices about about where they get their food once again it's not just about growing food because it's really about understanding where our food comes from and how to produce it. And, you know, you're right. It is hard to grow carrots. Yeah. Well, you know, in some ways it's easy to grow carrots, you know, but to grow the good carrots yeah. every week, you know, that's the hard bit, you yeah. know, otherwise, otherwise, you know, you end up with, with lots of food one week and nothing for a month. And, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> and that's exactly. not right. I've, I mean, as an example, we, we've Please. got a situation in Bristol uh -huh. where, and again, I mean, this is probably universal, but the, cities tend to spring up where there's good soil and and so what tended to happen certainly in the uk is you get a city and then you get around the city you get the market gardens on the really good soil around the city right as the city expands and populations grow the pressure gets put onto that land um, and certainly in the uk where for the last 30 40 years we've become more and more reliant on importing food less and less importance has been put on that soil uh, and just north of Bristol, there's a strip of uh, grade one. So the best horticultural land going up, they call it the blue finger because on the soil maps, the color of grade one is blue. And it's this uh, sort of finger of land that comes right. up north of Bristol. And it is the most amazing soil. Um, it's beautiful. It's deep. It's just the right texture. It's, you know, all the, all the things that you'd want. It's facing the right way. Uh-huh. Uh, and, and at the moment, Bristol City Council are building park and rides on it and building houses oh. on it. Um, and it's lost forever. And there was a massive demonstration uh, a year and a half, two years ago, against some of these developments. Mm -hmm. um, and there, and the interesting thing is the the development, certainly the park and ride, is about relieving congestion and cleaning up the air in the city. So, so actually, something that most of the people that were campaigning would have in principle agreed with because it was about getting a better transport infrastructure to reduce right. traffic city 
but actually they saw the bigger picture a lot of them um, and realized the threat to this wonderful soil that we'd never get back now as it happened in the UK we don't have any legal protection for soil so they lost mm-hmm. and the park and ride is built for me it was interesting the level of the protests and Bristol is un- is unusual it's quite a green city so that wouldn't be replicated everywhere but I think it showed that growing awareness of the importance of soil and the importance of localized food production and I think that yeah. comes from that connection with food growing yeah beautifully said so Let's also fold in this notion of edible trees into the city. So you've been involved with some of that. Well, yeah, and this this actually links a bit to uh, some other farming work that I'm involved in, which is around agroforestry and around bringing trees into farming systems. Mm-hmm. And community orchards are something that have been around for quite a long time, and they're they're quite a nice concept. They're you know you they're a lovely place to be. They don't take that much work, so they're you know they're they're actually quite an easy way of creating a community garden. But I'm also then interested in how you change people's perceptions of trees. So when I was at Horticultural College, we we were told, we were given our list of, you know, 15 trees to use in urban design. Uh-huh. Uh, and the idea of them was that they wouldn't drop their leaves, they wouldn't have messy fruit that people would have to clear up, you know, th- so they wouldn't be difficult trees, in other words. Um, right. And, and, and that, to me, is such a narrow way of looking at things. Um, you know, we, and, and then equally, we've got, you know, a lot of people who aren't getting access to fresh fruit and veg. Mm-hmm. But actually, we could be having loads of stuff that they could just be picking as they walk past. <laughs> exactly. So, again, and we've started to see it in some places where, you know, little corners of parks are being turned into just, you know, planting some soft fruit or a few fruit trees. But I'd like to see it as a much more strategic, potentially, you know, government led thing where actually they prioritize planting edible trees Mm. in in urban areas and and you know not just fruit but nuts and you know all of that whole range of things so that suddenly they become a resource as well as all the advantages that, yeah. that trees generally bring yeah i've been a long time supporter of if you're going to plant something and grow it spend money and time and energy on making it work it better be edible yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So. And, and you know, the, the beauty of it is, is that most of the edible trees are also great for wildlife and right. you know, all the other things. So it's yeah. not like you have to make a choice. The only choice is that some of them might make the street a little bit messier for a couple of weeks of the year. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. God forbid that should happen. Exactly. So and how do you go about finding land in cities? It's tough. It's tough. It's and again, I mean, I'm not an expert on the on the situation on your side of the uh, of the pond, but mm-hmm. over here, it's it's just kind of trawling around, really. And sometimes it's finding there are some city councils that are quite proactive. We've actually we have a history of some of our counties owning farms, and they used to do it as a way of providing opportunities for new entrants into farming mm-hmm. but with you know as you're probably aware we're on a massive austerity drive in this country and funding for almost everything's been cut so yeah. the local government is under a lot of pressure and there a lot of them are selling off their 
their county farms. Oh. But there's still there is still some land sometimes within city boundaries that that can be made available. And again, in Bristol, they're quite proactive um, in this respect. Nice. But but other other areas can be too. Sometimes though, you just have to go out and find anything. So there's there's some <laughs> quite interesting examples of using building plots. Um, and bringing in whether it's skips and just filling them with soil and growing in a skip and then when the right. site gets sold you pick up the skip and move it move to somewhere, it somewhere else. else um you know if people want to grow they find ways of, of of finding land or even you know people growing in shopping trolleys and, and pushing them around so oh, it depends right. on it, it depends on the scale really that you that you want to want to grow in yeah. and and it's and it's looking for just any space you know any corner of grass and often it's a cost to to the council or mm -hmm. to the the city government to to manage that whether it's mowing it or clearing it right. so sometimes if you say actually you know our group our, our residents in this area are going to take it over you don't have to worry about it anymore we'll look after it and we'll use it to grow food if they've got even a little bit of imagination and then, then often they'll let you do that right. but you just have to keep asking and keep knocking on doors I, I think that's a big piece of it be persistent absolutely yeah yeah be persistent there was a, a great initiative in this country which was called oh i can't even remember there was land share i think or something where mm -hmm. they they basically had a website and you could put up on the website whether you had land to offer or whether you were looking for land it's always great to find those land share organizations out there, that is for sure, and especially if there's one in your community, because I, I know that we always get people looking who have land to share, and you know I know there's farmers out there that wanna, you know, wanna do the work. So I'm yeah, sure- Yeah, absolutely, yeah. Yeah. So I'm gonna shift on you, and I'd like for you to talk about a time you failed, how you overcame that failure, and what you might've learned from it. So one of my big growing failures was my first sort of big-ish commercial venture. And uh -huh. I was working, I was working on, I mean, I say big, it was big for me at the time. But it was a couple of acres. We had a, a really sort of cold, wet spring and I was desperate to get my shallots in. Um, and I was, we were working on quite heavy soil and I was looking at it thinking, no, I, I, I don't know, it's, and then I was getting to the end of March. I, I've really got to get them in. So I said, I'm just going to go in. I'm going to do it. So I went in with the plow and it was, you know, I did a few rows and it was just smearing it. And I thought, oh, no, I've got to stop. But I, so I planted, say, three rows of these things and then waited a, a week. And, of course, the ground dried out beautifully. And mm -hmm. we, we, did, we did another three rows and put the rest in. And, of course, the ones that we put in later, within about a week, had overtaken yeah. that first lot. And that was my really big lesson in patience in uh -huh. growing. And, that, and, and sort of having the confidence, really, to say, I, I know it's not right. right. You know, I may not quite understand why it's not right. I may not have fully articulated. But just you, you get that feeling that you shouldn't be doing it and you should just hang on. You know, I've seen it since time and time again with other people where for uh, whatever reason there's pressure put on them, whether uh -huh. it's self-imposed self or whether it's from the boss or from other members of the community or whatever it is. We think, I should be doing this. I should be seen to be to be active and actually being able to hold back and say, yeah, no, I'm going to wait for the right time. Yeah. And that's I, I, that goes to listening to your gut, listening to your intuition. And I guess, you know, that really comes from making mistakes right yeah absolutely <laughs> and the i mean the other one on a slightly different scale actually uh -huh. was when we started the community farm up 
we talked earlier about having that one person who had the drive and the vision. For us, it was someone called Phil Horton, who's a organic pioneer, retailer, grower. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, he's he's one of these people that just inspires you to do stuff. And he had a particular vision of of what the farm should be. And initially, you get quite carried away by that. Yeah, we can. You know, we can do that. We can take on the land. But actually what it meant was we took on too much land too quickly. Mm. We we didn't put the effort into fertility building that we should have done. We we basically planted too much without quite having the resources to look after it. And the cracks didn't always show immediately. You know, the first <laughs> couple of years, the first couple of years we had the energy and we, you know, we were we were all, yeah, we can do this, we can do this. And then you know the cracks started to show yeah and for me it was a huge lesson just in in really mapping out what you really believe is achievable and then probably even doing a little bit less than that initially yeah um because if you do it really well that's great then you can build on it and you can expand the next year and part of the some of the pressures we had initially at the community farm were purely down to to us all being i think carried away by this vision that we didn't quite have the resources for yeah and that for me was a real lesson in uh, sustainable growth i guess really yeah in the sustainable piece i tell people all the time that if you take on too much and fail you may not continue so take on the right amount yeah be successful at it and that that drives the yeah that drives the conversation bigger go ahead yeah and it is you know you want that big vision but you want to get there in the the right way (laughs) exactly (laughs) exactly what do you consider your biggest success besides the book that i'm hand that i've got in my hands right now (laughs) well the other the other biggest success probably is the training scheme that we did at the Soil Association, which we call the Future Growers Scheme, which started as a conversation between some of our growers mm-hmm. and, and ourselves. And this was 10 years ago, just after I started at the Soil Association, about the, the lack of good growers uh, that wanted to come into the industry. And again, we had in the UK, we had in, this, in the 70s, the, the sort of the, the hippie growers that left the urban world and went off and, and founded a whole load of businesses. The good ones of that su- survived and succeeded. So mm-hmm. we've got this real sort of cohort and community of what are now 60, 65 year old growers. Right. I, I came in a slightly different generation and there were very few people of my age actually were doing it. There are, you know, maybe the sort of uh, a quarter of the number probably that that were doing it in the 70s and i felt a lack of community support from peers at that time i didn't really realize it until i realized what other people had had yeah i just felt that there was no one else really doing what i was doing and i mean i got to the soil association by going to their events and their conferences every year and thinking wow this is amazing there's some really inspiring people here and and so when when these guys came to us and said we need new people coming in we're really worried about our industry and about what's going to happen to it right so so we set up at the time we the first sort of phase of it was an apprenticeship scheme where we set up two year placements with growers and we ran a series of courses around it um and then it's gone through slightly different guises to the stage where we are now where we provide uh, a whole syllabus of training weekends over the year wow nice um, and we've over it's not you know it's not a massive 
a massive scheme we've provided we've had 80 plus people go through uh-huh. it over the over the 10 years we've actually got around 20 people on it this year which is our biggest intake uh-huh. but actually if you look at the number of organic growers in the uk there's maybe 800 or a thousand so it's roughly 10 percent have gone you know if they all stayed in growing we've got right. our we've got our succession effectively but actually even more than that it's been we've built around that scheme we've built this community of growers and one of the things that the the people that have been through the scheme say is yeah we learned stuff and you know we're better growers than we were but actually what has been amazing about it is meeting the, the other community. people who are doing are doing what we're doing and a lot of them yeah. are still in touch some of them are, some of them are not growing anymore uh-huh. um but they're still connected and they still have that deep understanding. And and it really hit home for me where one of our very experienced growers, Ian Tolhurst, who's kind of like one of our gurus over here, and he, he said, oh, he said, well, you know, what you've done with this is wonderful. He said, actually, it, it just gives me hope. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that was just a wonderful thing to hear. That these guys yeah. who basically had worked their whole life building something, building a market, building a movement we're really worried that the whole thing was just going to disappear and so what we you know it obviously wasn't just just the soil association we did it in collaboration with the growers and with other organizations but it's uh it's yeah it's been a great thing to be involved in so yeah. nice nice and well congratulations because that's building the educational piece that takes a lot of energy but i think yeah. building the community is I don't want to devalue the educational piece of it, but that's more important. Well, and in a way, the education flows from that. Yeah. If if you've got the community, and if and it's not just uh, oh, you know, here's some other people doing what you're doing, but we're also connecting them to the experience growth. So suddenly, yeah. and and I remember, you know, when I first just started going to these conferences, and you know, I'd see the the Ian Tolhurst and the you know these other people, and I'd be terrified to go and talk to them. I don't, <laughs> right. I don't want to make myself sound like a total idiot. I don't know what I'm talking about. Yeah. You know, whereas now we they've they've been to their farm, they've had a chat, they've sat around the bonfire with them. Yep. You know, so they're not afraid to talk to them. So suddenly, that flow of information and learning is is made much easier. Exactly. So what drives you? I, um, until, you know, I've been with the Soil Association 10 years, but until that, I've moved around quite a lot. I hadn't stayed very long in a, you know, I'd stay for two or three years in a job and then move on. Uh-huh. And I, I think part of it is I get bored quite easily, which took me a while to realize. And I think really what drives me is, A, is I like doing new, interesting stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, I love people. And I love food. And so it's kind of, <laughs> I, I tend to grab opportunities that come my way. I'm not very strategic uh-huh. um, in, in how I go about my life. You know, the book is a classic, well, not this book so much, but the first book that I wrote, which is a, a book on compost for, uh-huh. for children, it was just chance. You know, we were, I was talking to someone about another book that we were endorsing from the Soil Association. And she says, oh, you know, do you fancy writing a book for us? I was like, oh, crikey, I've never written a book, but yeah, why not? You know, and, and <laughs> I, things, things come up and I think you just have to say yes to everything and, yeah. and work out whether you can do it along the way. So I, I have, you know, I'm obviously passionate about gardening and about food and all the rest of it. And I think I just like talking about what what I'm passionate about. My wife often tells me to shut up at dinner parties if I she says, Oh, you're not going on about gardening again, are you? <laughs> of course we are. <laughs> okay. No, no, they're interested, honestly. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Well that's what we do, right? 
exactly yeah um and and i just feel very lucky in a way to have to been able to to do for my life what i enjoy doing and and to have been given opportunities to do that so i call that blessed yeah absolutely i love what you said you said just say yes to everything it's a kind of foolish confidence sometimes and i I won't pretend that i've succeeded at everything well um, that's okay that's how we learn I have, I have a general belief and I think actually I mean I owe it to my parents who uh-huh. gave us all that confidence in a mm-hmm. way most people given the right circumstances can achieve most things in my opinion yeah what holds most people back is is either lack of opportunity or lack of confidence there, there was a program in this country called faking it I don't know if you had it over there where huh. they they sort of took some random person and and put them in uh, some career that or skill that they had no experience of and they were given six weeks of really intensive training wow from the best people in that you know whether it was horse riding or right. ice or graffiti art or whatever it happened to be and then at the end of that six weeks they had to fool somebody in that profession that they that they knew what they were doing so they had to enter a competition or <laughs> you know, do something and and what amazed me was how often they managed to to blag it yeah after six after six weeks yeah and it's and it's sort of in a way that reinforced it you know if you're given an opportunity i mean obviously you have to have a little bit of whatever skill is required for that right. but not that much given six weeks of the best training you can you can mostly blag it and that yeah. to me says quite a lot about what people can achieve yeah um, yeah nice nice so i'm all about education and i have to know is there a book that's been influential for you in this process in your life I'm still struggling with the book because there's so many books. There's there's a book actually that's just I think being republished, which is a book on salads by Joy Larkham. I don't know if you ever come across Joy Larkham. I haven't. Probably getting on a little bit now. She probably wouldn't want me to say that, but but it was first published I think in the 80s, possibly the 70s or 80s. And at the time, it was it was the Bible, the salad Bible. Uh-huh. And reading that actually changed my perception of of growing so you know when i went the course that i did the the horticultural course was a relatively uh, conventional standard course it looked at food production in you know it wasn't entirely food production course and it was you know here's some apples and here's some cabbages and you know there's a few crops that you look at it wasn't very food orientated it was quite process orientated and i you know i'd come from that world of wanting to eat amazing stuff and always you know often having fresh ingredients at home but actually then to this whole world effectively of salads that was opened up in front of you 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 know and that's just i guess one example of then you know looking and 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 in a way actually more more even than books i mean there are there are two other people actually that have written stuff that that may not be that well known in the states there's one called charles dowding um, who I definitely recommend your listeners look up. And he's written a series of, of books. One is called The Winter um, Vegetable Book. And he's, he's very into no dig. He's got a really good no dig system. Yeah. Um, but he's a really inspirational gardener. And then the other one who I mentioned earlier is Ian Tolhurst, who comes from a more sort of commercial angle. But he's written a book called Growing Green. He ha- runs a vegan organic system, mm, um, so mm-hmm. he has no animal inputs at all on oh, wow. you know on a relatively large farm, 
Um, but he just uh, tries so many new things all the time. Every year he's yeah. trying some new system. And, and, and for me, one of the real perks of my job at the Soil Association is I get to go and visit these people. Um, you know, I'd probably do it in my spare time. And instead, <laughs> instead I'm getting paid to go and stand and listen yeah, to Yeah, exactly. So in a way, almost more than those those books, it's, it's some of those people. And, yeah. and one of the things I would really urge people setting up a community garden to do is to try and find some local vegetable or fruit growers and you know whether it's go and volunteer with them for a while or, or just go and visit them find an open day and actually just talk to them and and you know within the space of a half an hour conversation you'll probably pick up as much information as as you would from reading you know a yeah. couple of books yeah plus it's local not, information not mine, exactly it's local information it's local information Excellent. Well, thank you so much for joining us on the show and sharing your experience with us today, Ben. It has been a treat getting to chat with you. Well, it's been an absolute pleasure. Thank you. Absolutely. So how can our listeners get a hold of you? Well, I'm on Twitter, at Ben underscore Raskin. That's probably the best way. I do have a website, but I'm supposed to be getting a new website soon. So I'm not, right. I'm not necessarily going to point people in the direction of my website at the moment, which is um, a little bit um, out of date. When your book is The Community Gardening Handbook, The Guide to Organizing, Planting, and Caring for a Community Garden, it is by Lumina Media. So, and I'm sure it's available on Amazon and at your local bookstore. You can also find show notes from today's podcast at urbanfarm.org forward slash Ben Raskin. Well, that's it for today. Thanks for joining us on the Urban Farm Podcast. Do you want to save money at the grocery store, eat more organic, whole foods, cultivate food security, and feel more connected to the earth? If so, then growing your own food is a no-brainer. You wouldn't believe how many people come to me claiming that they can't grow their own food. They think they don't have enough space, that they're too busy, or that they simply don't have what it takes. Perhaps you've fallen for one of these gardening myths. If you think you can't grow food, or if you think the only food that you have access to is what you buy in the grocery store, I have a life-changing webinar that you need to see. It's free and will help you unearth your inner gardener. I've helped thousands of people just like you learn to grow their own food, and I'm speaking from my own experience when I say that with the right knowledge in place, there is no such thing as a black thumb. With this webinar, you can begin making your garden dreams come true and start growing delicious, nutritious food for your family. Just text GARDEN to 44222 or go to IWantToGarden.com and you will receive our free webinar about the seven key factors you need to know to grow your own food. Remember, that's GARDEN to 44222 or IWantToGarden.com. We hope you enjoyed today's episode of the Urban Farm Podcast. Remember to listen three days a week for tips, advice, and resources to help you on your journey with urban farming. You can find us on the web at urbanfarm.org or send us an email to podcast at urbanfarm.org. In the words of Vincent Van Gogh, great things are done by a series of small things brought together. Be encouraged that with each lesson learned and skill developed, you are one step closer in the direction of your dreams. Hey, Urban Farm Podcast listeners, if you're as passionate about preserving the bounty of each season as we are, 
Hey, I canned my first peaches at the age of 18 and that was a long time ago. Then you're going to love what our friends over at Denali Canning have in store for you. They're on a mission to spread the love and knowledge of food preservation and they're inviting you to join the journey for free. Right now, Denali Canning is offering free canning lids to anyone who wants to dive deeper into the world of food preservation. Yes, you heard that right, absolutely free. It's the perfect opportunity for both seasoned canners and those curious about starting. Denali is about quality, reliability, and supporting the canning community, ensuring that you get the best results every time you preserve. So why not give it a try? Visit DenaliCanning.com forward slash free to claim your free lids and start your preserving adventures today. That's DenaliCanning.com forward slash free.